0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And of course, it's October here
0: on the podcast. So we got to be talking about the undead. But this is a real special episode because
1: today is the day that the undead go to church. That's right, uh, and uh, th- this topic ended up being a whole lot of fun to research uh, and, uh, and and write on because I, I knew some of this, but I did not know all of it, uh, and and I think th- the key thing is when when you think of the undead, when you think of zombies in particular. Uh, like, what What do you think about it? Uh, for, for me, uh, one line that instantly comes into my mind that I remember hearing at a, at a young age and is, uh, is from the trailer for George Romero's 1978 zombie classic, Dawn of the Dead, when there is no more room in hell, the dead will walk the earth. Very much suggests
0: that reanimated corpses shambling around are a distinctly satanic phenomena, uh, though as in in George Romero's uh, universe, I think it is. I, I think that's actually more a naturalistic interpretation. Don't they say? What's the deal? Like a, a satellite comes to Earth or something like that. What do they say in the first one?
1: Yeah, I think it's some sort of satellite crashes. And but there's kind of it's kind of like hearsay, right? Or it's what the media is saying. It's it's right. it's ultimately um, it's it's out of our hands. And and I guess that that leads me to the the next very broad distinction that I I tend to make with zombie films is that you have uh, you have environmental zombie films and you have sort of necromantic or, or magical zombie films. In the environmental, something has happened that causes an extreme reversal in how death works. The, the dead, instead of staying dead, they rise. And so it, it might be some sort of supernatural event, uh, which that that quote uh, <laughs> kind of implies it's like well humans you done send up hell and now mm. there's no more room so the dead are going to walk the earth it, it's kind of our fault but it's ultimately a, a larger systematic error that's going on uh okay so
0: in your view environmental causes could still be supernatural but they would be supernatural mechanistic rather than like supernatural directed will
1: yeah you know they're uh, or or if it's if it is directed it's it's like on a divine level. It's like, well, God's had it. He's just letting the zombies roam now. Um, you know, and it's god reasons for that taking place. Um or, or you know, or it could even be scientific, but it's a, like a scientific accident by human science. Well, you were trying to make zombie bioweapons. Well, you shouldn't have done that. Now look what's happening. The dead are walking. Yeah, here's the rage virus. Though, I guess
0: uh, a complication with that is that you know, Resident Evil 28 days later, all that kind of stuff. A lot of that is often Uh, There's a blurring of the lines Between what is undead and what is
1: just Some infected form of human being Right, right now, the other area, the, the necromantic or magical uh, interpretation, this is, this is more where you have someone or something intentionally raising the dead through the use of magic, um, op- generally to do something, to do the bidding of their master, you know, who might be a warlock or a demon or another powerful undead being, maybe a mad scientist, even an alien mastermind or a dark, like, minor deity, that sort of thing. But it's like, I need something done. I need, some, I, I need I need. an army of the dead. So I'm going to raise up an army of the dead to do specific dead things as opposed to like, well, now all the dead rise from the grave and they do dead things. Right. I
0: am the Witch Queen Zenobia. I say a bunch of skeletons. You pop up out of the ground, get you some swords and, and shields and go kill Sinbad.
1: Yeah. So either way, I guess, very broadly speaking, there's plenty of, of examples I know that kind of break this. Zombies are either a thing that just kind of happens and is part of the new natural order of things or the unnatural order of things, or it's something that is done by an agent of evil. Um, today, we're going to be getting into, I guess, both of these categories a little bit, but in a way, we're also discussing a, a third category, you know, the, the holy undead, pious zombies, and church-going, perhaps God-worshipping uh, wraiths and revenants who might just pack the local cathedral. You know, I would say that this is mostly new to me, but it has been so
0: wonderful getting into these stories because they are so full of weird ambiguities and contradictions. I think that often suggest very interesting and enlightening things about the
1: cultural climate in which these tales arise. Right, and also the sort of um, the cultural soil, uh, sort of the, oftentimes the pre-Christian soil from which these uh, myths and folk tales uh, have germinated and then changed forms a little bit in the Christian era. You know, just to go back to Dawn of the Dead briefly, though the idea of the dead going to church, uh, it, it 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 is a little bit like the dead going to the mall in <laughs> Dawn of the Dead. You know, they just show up and they're going to do they're going to do what humans do at the mall. And they're just going to wander around, um, and uh, and and it, it you know it, I feel like it matches up a little bit with some of the stories we're talking about here yeah in Dawn of the Dead, it's interesting
0: because uh, it, there is an assumption in the Romero zombie universe that the zombies are operating at a very low a very reduced level of cognition. you know they have mm-hmm. a very limited ability to reason. Uh, I mean they can clearly like use their brains enough to sort of like move toward the thing they want to eat uh, right. but but it doesn't get much more complicated than that with them. But I think one of the characters in Dawn of the Dead says, uh, why are they all coming here to the mall? This must be some place that was important to them in life and without anything else to do, without any brains to eat in the nearby area, they just sort of drift back to a place that was significant in their lives and uh, almost as if by force of habit. And that's yeah. kind of interesting, too, because it suggests that uh, whatever it is you would really say you want to be doing in, in your afterlife, maybe you would say, I'd, I'd go, uh, I don't know, visit my still-living relatives and give them news from beyond the grave or something. In fact, what you do is walk the steps you've walked a hundred times before. And where does that take you? You go to
1: the mall, baby. <laughs> now, some would say there's no ethical consumption of brains under capitalism, but I guess that, <laughs> we'll have to discuss that in another episode. Let, let's get back to religion, though. Oh yeah, yeah. So we should talk about uh, maybe a specific example to get us going of of one of these stories about uh, about the church going undead. So uh, the story I wanted to, to start with here, I wanted to start with because it's ultimately the story I've had the longest um, uh, exposure to, I guess, in my life. Um, I started looking into this, and then I realized, oh, I have I've read some version of this story before. Uh, and uh, I, I want to take uh, I want to take at least some of you back uh, to the Enchanted World book series from Time Life Books. Um, I, some of us had these, some of us didn't. Uh, I was lucky enough. I think my aunt had purchased these, and I kind of. Temporarily inherited them, but I also still have them decades later, uh, mm-hmm. be, and and ultimately it, was gonna, it will be hard to make me give them up because they 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 ultimately uh, put, played I think an important role in my my childhood. But if you were watching TV in the early nineteen eighties, you might remember a TV spot for these books starring uh, the legendary Vincent Price. I will buy anything Vincent Price tells me to. Yeah, I wonder what else was he uh, was was he uh, pitching back then
0: unsleeve the delicious flaky crust of a hot
1: pocket (laughs) oh man oh he would have been great for tombstone pizza right vincent price tombstone would be very good i guess they were going for more of a western thing though man Vincent price impression was
0: bad i gotta work on that try to well
1: why don't why don't we uh, I, i encourage everyone to look this up uh this particular commercial up on youtube but let's go ahead and have just a little audio sample of it uh because it's yeah it's vincent price it's fabulous
2: On evenings like this, I like to curl up with a good book. The sort of book that lets the imagination run away with you. If you're like me and enjoy the mysterious and the unexpected, you'll love the enchanted world. Each volume brings to life so vividly those inhabitants of the other world. Witches and wizards, ghosts, goblins, and avenging knights. Call now and enter the enchanted world with the first book, Wizards and Witches. (laughs) My favorite subject. It's an intriguing account of sorcery spells and deception. Other books include ghosts, fairies, and elves, and dragons. Painstakingly researched by the editors of Time Life Books, each volume is exquisitely illustrated and portrayed with masterworks of art. Each volume is superbly written and bound in luxurious fabric.
0: So, Rob, I, I was never lucky enough to have these books as a kid, but uh, but I guess if you had access to them, I would assume that these books made you the terrible adult you are today.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, probably so. They uh, they were pretty great because each one, well, first of all, as as Vincent Price reminds us, each one is bound in luxurious fabric. Luxurious, Um, yes. mm -hmm. And and each one is a different color, uh, which I I distinctly remember because each book deals with a different topic. And, you know, so you have fairies, you have Camelot, giants, uh, you know, mermaids and so forth. Uh, I didn't have them all, but I had a number of them. Uh, and I re- distinctly remember there were, of course, two black books, uh, blackbound books. One of them was on ghosts, and the other one was on night creatures. And these were, in, in a you know, sort of a, a childhood way, these were both my favorites of the series, but also the most feared. I remember that they'd be on the shelf, and I could barely bring myself to look at their spines on the bookshelf if the sun had gone down, because I knew how terrifying— The illustrations were in there and how terrifying the contents of the stories were. Um, And I I certainly wasn't going to pull one of these books off the shelf at night, uh, because the, the cover art was absolutely horrible on each of them. Oh, that's so wonderful. And when I say the, the, mention the art, it was all the books featured a combination of, say, woodcuts and, uh, and, and old paintings, you know, as well as new custom illustrations matching up with the, with the stories from different artists. And we'll mention one in particular in a bit. Uh, uh, specific artists all with different styles so it was it, it's just a visual delight i i highly recommend it. if you have a chance to pick up any of these books and you're interested in these topics do so uh, i think they must have printed billions of these things because I, I just looked around the other day and you can pick them up for like dollar a dollar or two dollars each i think in some cases if you buy them used wonder how that luxurious fabric holds up I think it did holds up all right. I don't know how luxurious it it really looks these days, but uh, you know the books are holding together, and and that's that's enough. So the the ghost book, like I said, was particularly scary, and it featured a tale of the pious undead. So it's it's a short section in the book uh, titled "The Hooded Congregation," and it is fantastically illustrated and perhaps written. I think the the, the writers are all just it's listed as like by folks at the Time Life Books or something. So he might have written it as well, but he at least illustrated it. Talking about Caldecott medal winning author, Chris Van Allsburg. If the name didn't ring a bell, let me just say this is, this is the artist who illustrated and wrote the books Jumanji in 1981 and The Polar Express in 1985. Ah, uh, both known for uh, very elegant uh, illustrations. Yeah, and ultimately very, you know, ghostly and, you know, kind of a... Yeah, ultimately ghostly. So it's like this. The, uh, I, I never really liked the Polar Express book because it did feel kind of cold. And, uh, and like, for, it's something all of the spirit world. And I was like, this, I don't know, this, this isn't my Christmas. Uh, but uh, the hooded congregation in, in, in the Time Life books here. Uh, the illustration style apps absolutely works and is is fabulous. It's um, so what we have here is a series of haunting black and white images, and I, I sent these to some images of these to you, Joe, so you could look at these as well. And yeah. then you have text pages that feature tiny images of a woman in a casket, and as you proceed through the story, her face shrivels towards a skull. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful.
0: These are indeed beautiful, though I'm almost kind of glad I didn't look at these illustrations as a kid because if I had, I am positive I would have cemented an unbreakable association between the, the ghostly hooded figures in the congregation and in, in especially the second illustration here and the bad guys in Charlton Heston in the Omega Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, there is this kind of a similar situation going on with the, 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 the hooded figures. All right, so I'm, I'm going to briefly roll through the story here. Uh, And I'm sorry for the Christmas creep, everyone, but this is a holiday story. So, it takes place Christmas morning. Uh, We're somewhere in the Swedish mountains centuries ago, and a young woman has awoken extremely early, and she hears the sound of church bells. So, what does she do? Church bells are ringing. You need to get your your butt to church. So, she ventures out into the darkness. Uh, and and you know it's it's a dark time of year. It's a cold time of year. The the cold, the cold is biting. She makes her way to the village church, and uh, the, the door is open. Inside, the pews are filled with black hooded figures, and a hooded priest in gray stands at the stands on, uh, at at the front of the church, is reciting psalms, uh, you know, leading folks in song, that sort of thing. Normal church business, except everything's a little weird. Um, uh, the the woman is led in she takes a seat and then a figure uh, sits beside her and then that figure that is seated beside her pulls back her hood and reveals the death shriveled face of her dead sister whoa you don't see that coming yeah and she she cries out you are the dead and then all the hoods fall back from the other worshippers, and it's revealed that they are all indeed the dead in various states of decay. Uh, it's written in this telling of the story that the oldest are little more than shadows, but you see, you know, some still have flesh on them, and they're, uh, they seem to be physical apparitions, though, for the most part. Uh, her sister, her undead sister here, warns her to flee while she can, and she gets up to do so, uh, but of course the congregation uh, gets to their feet as well. They chase after they claw after her with these skeletal fingers, and she feels them jabbing at her back as she reaches the door uh, to to leave uh, the church. And they pull the scarf from her neck in the process. So she gets away. She runs to the the village priest's house, and uh, he's getting ready to go to church to open it up. He doesn't know that the church is already open, at least for some folks. Uh, So they go back together, and they find that the church is completely empty. But then there is her scarf on the floor, shredded uh, to pieces by those skeletal fingers.
0: This is such an unusual type of story uh, because of this strange blending of themes. So there is... Clear menace implied by the beings of the church. These are not just you know righteous Christians who have passed on. The kind of people that Dante might encounter in in the Paradiso, uh, mm-hmm. where they'd be you know humbly uh, praising God from the point of the afterlife. Uh, no, they they are in church and they are praising God, but they're also dangerous. Like they immediate they attack and they mm-hmm. they poke with the bony fingers. They shred the scarf. These things on the surface level at least seem incongruous.
1: Yeah, like how can like okay they they hate the living well we expect that of the dead right but they oh. love God that seems kind of strange right you'd think that the uh the, the, they, they this would match up more with our our idea of the the the, the satanic undead the devilish undead the unholy undead as opposed to uh, holy zombies at church mm-hmm. so yeah it's a simple weird little ghost story and uh, the, the illustrations especially always haunted me when I looked at the pictures. But but I don't think I ever really thought about about why, and uh, I I think, you know, it had to do with the the darkness of the undead having such a presence in both a church and a Christmas story. I know that that, that, you know, I did think about that when I was a Mm -hmm. kid. But, uh, you know, but but you know here was the kicker it was as if the ghosts were supposed to be there you know not vile invaders intent on desecrating the church and destroying those who love god or something you know but uh, but they were they were doing their thing it was like it was their time to be in the church and the village girl had simply wandered in to the night church where she did not belong and yeah. where the dead worship while we sleep it almost makes you wonder
0: the fact that they're in church praying before they attack her makes you kind of like reframe the story. It makes you wonder, did she do something wrong? Like, yeah. did she step on their turf or offend them in some way, maybe by pointing out the fact that her sister was dead? Um, you know, was that unwelcome news to them in some way or something like that?
1: Yeah. So what does it all mean? Well, we're going to get into that. But uh, I, uh, initially, though, I was like, all right, I've, I've read the Time Life version. I've reread the Time Life version now. Well, what's what are some of the original versions of it? Well, I... Um, I, I found a wonderful blog post, well written, uh, nicely cited by uh, Camilla Christensen on uh, in, in, on the, the blog Legends of the North, Legends of the North.blogspot.com. Um, they are a, a native Norwegian blogger, and uh, they write about it a bit here and point out that the the t- the, the tale is usually known as uh, the Midnight Mass of the Dead. And Christensen writes that the tale seems to originate from Germanic, Romance, and Slavic regions, and that. While there, were, there are many variations of this tale to be found throughout Europe, the oldest date back to the 6th century by historian Gregory of Tours, while it pops up in Nordic writings during the 1700s. And, and we'll get more into some other uh, traditions that seem to weave their way into this particular tale uh, as we proceed. But the story generally follows a basic format. A man or a woman, they wake too early, perhaps confused by church bells and or the darkness of winter months in northern climates. Uh, thinking themselves late to church, they rush to uh, uh, to the church and soon realize that they have wandered into the midnight mass of the dead. Uh, a deceased loved one urges them to flee, and in some tellings, um, such as the one in the Enchanted World book, they make it out alive and they merely lose a garment that becomes proof of what occurred, you know? But but in other tellings the dead just simply tear them to pieces or otherwise drag them into the realm of death and while it's not always christmas eve uh we do see this uh, idea that you know what is christmas but the darkest evening of the year it's this time when the veil between the worlds of the living and the dead are the thinnest uh, so it kind of it, while at first you might think oh well christmas is not a time for the dead to come back to life well you know maybe if if you're talking about uh, you know modern santa claus traditions but if you're getting into the older ideas of uh, of winter uh, religion and winter uh, legends and winter traditions then then yes this is a time when death is very close this reminds
0: me of a line that comes from another story that uh, I'm going to talk about in a bit from a from a medieval Christian bishop who wrote about similar types of, of tales of, of the pious undead. This guy is like a 10th to 11th century uh, German bishop named uh, Tietmar von Merseburg, And after telling uh, a story kind of similar to this, uh, Tietmar concludes with the statement, "...as day is to the living, so night is conceded to the dead." Uh, and I, I love that phrase. Night is conceded to the dead, as if it, like it it is ground that has been lost. The the dead have taken it, and it belongs to them. And I, of course, I guess that would seem especially true in the winter when the night is the longest.
1: Yeah, so it's easy to to see like this this idea of a dual world. Uh, there's the world of the night and the world of of the day. There's the world of the living. Mm-hmm. There's the world of the dead. Uh, it, it also makes me wonder too if tales like this might have something to do with the idea that. That we have human spaces, uh, in this case, artificial human spaces like church interiors, places of, of stone and wood that exist for particular purposes. So, if this space is for, you know, X, then does X occur even when we are not there? Uh, you know, mm-hmm. an empty church is not a church in some respects, so perhaps it remains occupied even when we are not in the church. I'm um, not sure if that that makes sense uh, uh, that I was kind of mulling over it and uh, yeah, like a, a place that we have created, like absolutely, such as an enclosed place. It you know it can't it can't just be a wild place again. Uh, you know unless it you know decays and becomes one with nature. Uh, like it's it's still a church, but it's it's not a church if the people are not gathered in it. That's a very good
0: point about the conceptualization of sacred spaces. So like is a to a medieval Christian. Would they consider a building to be a genuine Christian church if it is at its that the time of its uh, construction say consecrated to the Christian religion or does it depend on its day-to-day use yeah
1: anyway just something worth 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 keeping in mind as we proceed now you know, if the undead here, though, again, they, they they sound pious, but they also sound a bit violent and hostile. Um, you know, there seems to be strong vibes of the dead hate the living here. And Christensen points out in, in their blog that uh, pre-Christian traditions in Norse folklore, you know, are, are often about undead beings who have it in for the living, particularly when it comes to uh, a, at least a couple of different um, types of undead creatures. Uh, and, uh, this led me to, uh, the work of N.K. Chadwick from, uh, 1946. They wrote, uh, Norse Ghosts, an article that was published in the journal Folklore. And Chadwick points out that the ghosts of Scandinavia and, and Iceland, uh, that they stand out f- for being physical animated corpses, not ethereal spirits, but, but the actual reanimated bodies of the dead. So when we talk about the dead coming back and say, walking through a wall in your house, mm-hmm. uh, well, in the in the, the Norse and Aslandic uh, tradition, they're coming through the wall. They're busting through like the Kool-Aid man. You know, they're not going to just pass <laughs> through it like a spirit.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because sometimes stories of encounters with the living dead uh, don't specify one way or another whether you're talking about an insubstantial spectral kind of reanimation or a reanimation of the physical body. So I think there's a, a bias in modern ghost stories toward the uh, spectral apparition without mass. But in a lot of these older stories, yeah, you're talking about a creature with a body that might be uh, more aptly called something like a revenant rather than yeah. a rather than a ghost. Though people describing stories that are clearly referring to beings with physical bodies still use the term ghost stories a lot.
1: Yeah, you, you definitely see that in the in, in the literature. But uh, but yeah, the, these these are stories where the dead. Are, are so physical that you can wrestle them uh there's there's one that uh, chadwick mentions uh this is the swedish tale of the shepherd glamour who in the greta saga goes to work on a farm in iceland and is killed by a supernatural force and so he then returns to haunt the farm killing both livestock and human servants and then the hero of the saga greta the strong shows up and waits for him then wrestles him and, uh, many scholars have made the connection here between this tale and that of Beowulf and Grendel. You know, it's like mm. there's a monster problem. There's some sort of thing that comes at night. So the hero waits for it and then uh, enters into a physical contest with it when it uh, arrives. Now, Gretis eventually slays the undead horror in this tale. Um, you know, he was, I think he uses a sword on it. But uh, the sight, the mere sight of moonlight in the creature's eyes, it uh, it, it causes a sort of curse. And gretis is never comfortable alone in the dark again. It like scars him for life and has this kind of deteriorating effect on his psyche. In the modern context, one would be tempted to say he's gotten PTSD from this conflict. Yeah, exactly. So there are at least a couple of different beings that are uh, that are generally talked about in these traditions there's the Hogboy and the drogger uh, and these are both undead barrow dwellers so in some cases the drogger is said to build uh, his own barrow in life so he's like a uh, you know, he's like a local lord or something, and so he builds this barrow, this uh, vault of stone and earth, fills it with riches, and in some cases, the individual uh, is said to have themselves buried alive in the barrow, um, the, this is interesting. Like the, the the idea that Chadwick mentions that there are these accounts of of this uh, important individual, and there reaches the time when I guess this individual is thinking about death and the end, end of their life. And rather than quote die on straw, uh, which you know brings the, the to vision the idea of, of of dying of old age or dying of sickness in a bed. The mm-hmm. idea is you get you get twelve of your men with you, and you just get apparently just super drunk. Um, uh, on spirits and then you all go into the tomb uh, which again is filled with riches and i think even some food and stuff and then they seal you in and that's that's it that's your uh, that's your journey into the into the afterlife
0: this actually reminds me of something that i was going to get into later that is uh featured in in a paper that we're going to talk about this may actually end up being in in the next part of this series but uh this is in a paper by a historian of the Middle Ages at UC San Diego named uh, Nancy Mandeville Cacciola, and the paper is called "Revenance, Resurrection, and Burnt Sacrifice." It's the mm-hmm. uh, the paper that gets strongly into these uh, these stories of the pious dead told by by Tietmar, the medieval chronicler I already mentioned. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a part that I found very interesting where she explains sort of the uh, the frequently encountered common sense logic about what leads to the state of of restless death versus peaceful death in the Middle Ages, and that this is a an idea that probably exists mostly outside of Christian teachings. It was something that was common among pagan thinking of, of uh, medieval Europe, but that had a, a sort of continued folk belief life even after a region had often been uh, supposedly Christianized. And so she writes as follows. This was the notion that those who were subject to a, quote, "...bad death that was violent or sudden were unlikely to lie quietly in their graves." In such cases, the life force exits the body too quickly before the individual can make peace with the prospect of dying, while the trauma of a painful or violent death added to the fear among survivors that such a dead person might feel resentful of the living. In the felicitous phrase of Lester K. Little, so quoting another scholar here, these bodies expired with, quote, energy still unexpended, and thus were considered to be at high risk of returning from their graves. The flesh itself. Retained an element of untrammeled vitality. Now, I see some differences here because it's, that's emphasizing one of the main things about the so-called bad death that leads to a body getting back up out of the grave, being that they were not ready for death when it happened. And the Draugr here that you're talking about, it seems like they are specifically and intentionally ready, and yet there's still some kind of element of badness about this, uh, this death scenario, isn't there? Like it seems like that there's
1: something greedy about their approach to death. Yeah. And this, I think it gets kind of complicated. Again, there is a very, the, the idea that it is very premeditated. And and in fact, one of the things that Chadwick brings up is that, um, is that in some cases, in some cases, future Draga or, uh, individuals are said to have undertaken a preliminary journey to supernatural regions prior to their final disappearance into the Barrow, which makes, which for me, at least, made me think about the Necromongers in Chronicles of Riddick. I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, but the, the Lord Marshal there is said to have visited the Underverse and returned. You know, this idea that um, that you, you've kind of made, yeah, this, this initial jaunt into death, and you've come back and you, you've checked it out and you can say, all right, it's good. I, the lodgings are great. Uh, let's do this i can guarantee this is a connection that has never before been made in the folklore literature <laughs> but I, I do wonder if the, the 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 writers of that were inspired but um at any rate there this idea that um that there's still something off uh this seems to be the case so first of all there are multiple tales of this going on And uh, in some of the tales, the men don't stay content in their barrows. They hunger for blood. They venture back out, uh, you know, and and they're messing with with livestock or they're they're coming after living humans. Uh, But there are also these cases where a descendant of the individual in the barrow returns to it. And engages in a kind of ritual combat with them. So um, you can kind of um, you know imagine it as being perhaps a, you know about generational issues and uh, and family wealth and treasure. It's pretty interesting, or at least it it, it makes me think of of this kind of a scenario where a descendant might come back and be like, "Hey, uh, grandfather, uh, you've got a lot of a lot of gold in there." Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, the living need that gold. Uh, so uh, I can imagine uh, the, the kind of uh, conflict that would ensue. Now, Chadwick also shares two different accounts of note uh, because they're both examples of a story in which the undead don't appear to hate the living, uh, but they have issues with the living that are uh, that are pretty important. So one is from the 13th or 14th century er- Erbrigia saga. It's the story of Thorguna, who is this Christian woman who wishes that her body be buried when she dies in a Christian cemetery? But as as, as it occurs, uh, she dies two days' journey away from the place that she wants to be buried. So, what is, her family has to do, well, the, to to you know, meet her wishes, they have to take her body uh, on this two day journey. Uh, to uh, a place where she can be buried. But during the journey, they have to find somewhere to sleep. Uh, rather than just sleep out, of, you know, exposed to the elements, they just stop by a local farmhouse and they say, hey, can we spend the night here? And the farmer says, absolutely not. You, you're not having people come in here with a dead body. So... Uh, the farmer goes back into his house. You know, they go about goes about his business with the family. They go to bed, but then in the night, they hear a sound in the larder, and they uh, they go and they discover there the reanimated corpse of the woman, uh, and she is in there cooking supper for everybody. And so, at this point, that what what can you do? They humbly accept the meal, enjoy the meal, and they let the family stay the night. This is very interesting in how it compares to the
0: the undead going to church, because, again, this is a kind of unusual, like, it it's the undead engaging in the sort of uh, the wholesome and nutritious activities of the living.
1: Yeah, Chadwick also specifically mentions that the woman, the dead woman is naked whilst, um, uh, you know, messing around in the larder and cooking mm. supper, which which is interesting, too, because it, it brings to mind this idea of, like— um, of of like perfect honesty, you know, like, like she is the one who is um, also uh, honesty, but also there's something improper about it as well. You know, like um, it seems to match up well with this idea of the, of the, the apparition that is sort of shaming the farmers for not doing the right thing. But then on the same level, I mean, it is like a zombie in your kitchen cooking dinner. It's a little bit weird, Uh, but you brought it on yourself by not letting these people stay in your barn. Right. This also kind of
0: reminds me of one of the stories that we uh, in, in inverted form, but uh, it has some similarities to one of the stories we looked at from uh, *Tales from a Chinese Studio*. It mm-hmm. involves
1: the travelers on the road who are forced to stay in the room with the dead woman's body. Oh yes, yeah, and and that yeah that deals too with the the proper burial of the dead and what happens when you stand between um, the the dead and the, the the burial that they desire. Now there's a there's another. Um, uh, story from that same saga that Chadwick uh, mentions. And this one's, this one's more humorous. Uh, I really like this one. Basically, you have a boatload of drowned men, all from the same boat. Uh, but they show up at a feast they were going to anyway. And they, first of all, they insist on warming themselves by the fire. And I think this kind of causes a stir. But then on top of that, they insist on taking their seat at the feast table. So the living guests are are perturbed by this, and they say, "No, you, you can't be here. You've got to leave." And then, quote, "Legal proceedings were instituted against them." <laughs> so, uh, from here, the story apparently takes on uh, this on uh, the idea uh, takes on the the, the guys of like uh, Icelandic legal pleadings with mm-hmm. the dead men making their case, the living men making their case, and the dead men lose and and then agree. They're like, "Okay, we'll leave," and they go. <laughs> I like that it oh, it's a tale of the the dead walking among the living but ultimately engaging in a legal dispute the dead counter the living yeah yeah uh
0: oh that would make for a hell of a courtroom drama <laughs> the dead sue the living like an undead lawyer hero a sort of a, a zombie tom cruise and a few good men
1: oh yeah kind of a kind, kind of a lawyer lich this is gold nobody steal our idea <laughs> um I, I also love this too because i think uh you know if you if you you don't have any familiarity with the various sagas it's easy to think of it's easy to imagine that these are going to be tales that are just about violence and certainly there's violence in them but there's also a lot of like you know family feuding and intrigue and also legal proceedings so uh uh, you know fitting that we have that match up with a, a ghost story as well
0: All right, well, I guess the next thing I wanted to talk about was uh, some scholarship that I'd been getting into on this historical figure known as Bishop Tietmar of Merseburg, and uh, and his stories about the pious undead. And I, I think we're not going to have time to fully discuss this one in this episode, but we, we can start getting into it, and then we'll have to continue in the next part of the series uh, but just a hat tip on sources here. I know we first found out about this subject by the, there was a good short summary in uh, in Jstor Daily by Livia Gershon called "The Pious Undead of Medieval Europe." But this actually pointed to a uh, a long scholarly paper that I uh, that I went and read, and it, it's just wonderful. So this paper is called "Revenance, Resurrection, and Burnt Sacrifice" by Nancy Mandeville Cacciola. Who again? Uh, I mentioned her before, but she's a medieval historian at uh, University of California, San Diego, focusing on religious history. And this article was published in a uh, in a journal called *Preter Nature: Critical and Historical Studies on the Preter Natural* in 2014. Uh, this appears to be uh, some kind of collection or journal that's put out by Penn State University Press. And so it gets into this figure of the the of Bishop Teetmar and the stories that he tells. Now, the historical context of Bishop Tietmar, and I got I to say, by the way, I had to look up how his name is pronounced. It is spelled uh, T-H-I-E-T-M-E-R, but I, I think it would be Tietmar, sort of Dietmar. Okay. Kind of one of those, you know, it's like that uh, the difficult to pronounce like D-T-H thing in the Germanic languages. Mm. But I'm just going to say Tietmar, because I, I think that's about as close as we can consistently get. Um, so his context is Ottonian. He he is an Ottonian figure, and uh, this is a historical designation that comes from the name Otto. It describes the, the reign of a series of kings. These were Saxon kings in uh, medieval Germany. Uh, including three named Otto and two named Henry. So you got Henry I, also known as Henry the Fowler, and I think this is because he was allegedly tending to a bunch of bird nets when he received news that he had been made king. And then after Henry I, you got Otto I, then you got your Otto II, then you got your Otto three, and then finally your Henry II. So, these would have all been uh, uh, German Saxon kings beginning in the 9th or 10th century and then going into the 11th, seen in some ways as an artistic and cultural revival period of the, the older Holy Roman Empire. So, this would have uh, artistic traditions with a basis in Byzantine and Carolingian art and architecture. But these were also Christianizing kings who, had a, a, who saw themselves as having an important role in in the history of the world as Christianizers, as as spreading the faith of Jesus by conquest. And so to go to Cacciola's article, the the story begins with with a tale based in a place called uh, Valsleben, which is a town along the Elbe River. So this town could be seen as a kind of colonial outpost in a way. Uh, the Ottonian king Henry I, again, that's Henry the Fowler, he's the first one, he had been fighting a war of conquest against the, the tribes of the surrounding lands to cement the rule of his German Christian dynasty over the uh, religiously pagan and ethnically Slavic peoples in the area. And Valsleben was a fortified town, one of a number like it, along the Elba, which served to protect this northeastern region of Henry's Ottonian kingdom and in the year 929 the town of Volsleben was attacked in a revolt by the by the nearby peoples and we are told that all of its inhabitants were slaughtered mm-hmm. Uh, Cacciola writes, quote, Our chief source for this event, Vidukind of Corvey, reports in his Deeds of the Saxons that other quote, barbarous nations of Slavs likewise began to rebel when they saw the successful devastation of this revolt led by a group known as the Radarii. The spread of the rebellion was checked, however, when Henry I seized the Slavic fortress of Linzen. And so after this uh, massacre allegedly took place, Volsleben was then rebuilt and the Autonian dynasty again gained control over the area. And uh, Cacciola tells us that the great massacre at this town not only played a role in the military and political history of the Autonian era, but it also gave rise to supernatural urban legends, including one reported by another chronicler of the Autonians. This is the guy you know by now. This is Tietmar of Merseburg. So Tietmar was a bishop. I've seen it claimed elsewhere, somewhere, that Tietmar was the first bishop of Merseburg, but uh, but no. Uh, Cacciola says he was the second bishop of this town. Uh, he was born around 975 to what Cacciola calls an exalted warrior bloodline. I think this means his family, including Tietmar himself, had uh, served in a military capacity under the Ottonian kings. Tietmar himself had been a military advisor to Henry II, the uh the later Autonian king. And then from the years 1013 to 1018, Tietmar set out to record this massive eight-volume history of the Autonian dynasty known as the Chronicon. <laughs> and uh, note, this is probably not a super objective history. It sounds like he was firmly in the business of making the Autonian kings look awesome. <laughs> Though nevertheless, it's probably still also a, a pretty good source of of uh of life and tales and beliefs of the period right uh, though that he, though he definitely yeah, he's pro autonian he's going to tell you good things about them so apparently Tietmar gets to this massacre at valsleben toward the beginning of his history and cacciola writes that here he starts sort of drifting away from the public political history And getting into personal memory, Uh, first talking a bunch, saying a bunch of things about his own family's association with the history of the place. And then suddenly he just starts getting into ghost stories. He tells a haunted church story he once heard about this town. So here I'm going to read directly from Cacciola's translation of the story in Tietmar's Chronicon. Quote, So that no one who is faithful to Christ may doubt the future resurrection of the dead, but may proceed to the joy of blessed immortality zealously and through holy desire, I shall confide certain things that I have verified as true, and which occurred in the town of Valsleben when it was rebuilt after its destruction. The priest of that church used to sing matins there at the first blush of dawn. But when he arrived at the cemetery for the dead, he saw in it a great multitude of them, making offerings to a priest who was standing at the doors to the sanctuary. At first he stopped in his tracks, but then, strengthening himself with the sign of the Holy Cross, he tremblingly went through the whole crowd to reach the oratory, without acknowledging any of them. One of them, a woman whom he knew well and who had died recently, asked him what he was doing there. After he told her why he had come, she returned that everything had already been taken care of by them, and also that he did not have long to live. He reported this
1: to his neighbors, and it turned out to be true. <laughs> I love a, a ghost story or a weird story that, that it ends like that with just sort of a basic um, sourcing of the material. Uh, you know, Somebody told me this, and or there was evidence of it, and it was true.
0: Yes. And Tietmar, I love earlier on, also says, I have verified this story is true. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how, but that, that's what he says. And, uh, and it, well, But the part that turned out to be true and the implication in the last sentence is they told him he did not have long to live. He reported this to his neighbors and it turned out to be true. So that's, that's also saying like, oh yeah, he did die shortly after that. So Cacciola notes that however weird this story is, its point of view does not seem to be totally unique for its time and place and for its place in history. In medieval Europe, there were lots of stories about what she calls the continuing vitality and power of the dead. Uh, But the really funny thing about this history is that it seems like as soon as Tietmar tells one story about zombies... He gets so excited that he essentially derails his history of the Autonian kings for several pages, just telling a bunch of other random stories about reanimated corpses that he has heard. And I, I love this. I like. I wish more recent political hagiographies were like this today. You know, some somebody's writing about the great George Washington and how he never told a lie and all that, but then they get sidetracked for like a ten-page digression about people they know who have seen werewolves. <laughs> oh, that would be good. So to finish off part one here, I think maybe we can list and reflect on some general observations that Cacciola makes about this story in particular, and then in the next part we can come back to more of, of Tietmar's tales of ghosts and, and and undead beings and and uh, and branch out from there. Uh, But regarding this one particular story, uh, a few things worth noting. First of all, Cacciola calls these undead beings revenants, and this is worth pointing out because uh, although these are sometimes referred to as ghost stories – like we were saying earlier, the word ghost in modern parlance usually refers to a spectral insubstantial being rather than a bodily reanimation, uh, the latter of which, again, may have been called revenants in the past, would probably often be called zombies today. So even though the the phrase ghost story is often used to describe what Tietmar is doing here, you should not automatically assume spectral insubstantial beings. In fact, these very clearly seem to be reanimated corpses that have physical mass. And so Cacciola goes on to argue that uh, Tietmar's ghost stories haven't received a lot of scholarly attention. uh, And in general, she thinks that medieval historians have kind of underappreciated the importance of ideas about the dead in medieval culture. And uh, so, uh, contra that that lack of attention to the subject, she argues, for example, that, quote, the majority of medieval people who believed that they had had direct experience of the supernatural realm – did so in intimate confrontation with dead human beings rather than through encounter with a transcendent deity. So, if she's correct in that argument, this would mean, according to to Caciola, people at the time were more likely to believe they'd had an encounter with a ghost or a revenant rather than with, say, God himself or with Christ or the Virgin Mary. And these might, given the right uh, context, be equally taken as evidence of the supernatural realm, but that these more mundane encounters with just dead people and dead souls were were actually the more common thing for regular people to experience – And she argues there are are a lot of things that historians can potentially learn from these ghost stories. So first of all, they can suggest details about local pagan beliefs that existed before Christianity and then probably in some form continued to exist after uh, the Christianization of a region. Uh, In the case of Tietmar's ghost stories, these would be local Slavic pagan beliefs. Uh, And these beliefs, even though the Christian chroniclers might want to kind of suggest that the, these beliefs are wiped out by the Christianization of a population. In fact, they may well be partially preserved in stories like this. And so one example here is that Catholic doctrine placed a pretty clear and strong emphasis on what, uh, what is called in this paper the inertness of the human body after death. Uh, and this would be, of course, apart from the general resurrection in Catholic belief. So the, the, the Catholic belief about the afterlife is, you know, you die and then your body goes to the grave and it doesn't do anything after that until the second coming of Christ when the dead are raised and then, uh, and then God will judge the living and the dead. But these kind of stories reflect alternative beliefs about, you know, they, they don't reflect that emphasis on the inertness of the human body before the general resurrection. They say, uh, so the fact that these stories involve dead bodies popping up from the grave to go to church and worship together at night suggests other sources of beliefs about the afterlife, not just Catholic doctrines. Right. Right. But secondly, it's really interesting that you remember that uh, Tietmar, before he actually tells the story, he's, he sort of gives a disclaimer paragraph. Like he, he's like, now I've got a rhetorical purpose in telling you this, and is that, and it is that this story will affirm Catholic doctrine itself. He says that his story proves the Christian doctrine of bodily resurrection and can be used as evidence against anyone who is skeptical that the dead will be raised in Christ at the end of time. Uh, So, he says that, like, the local Slavic peoples do not have a correct understanding of the resurrection, and he hopes this story will help correct them. Mm. And and then a third point that Cacciola makes is that uh, these stories provide some evidence not just of lingering pagan beliefs alongside Christian beliefs – but of direct syncretism, actually the blending of different religious inputs into new hybrid forms of religion. Uh, This, of course, happens constantly throughout the history of religions all over the world. In fact, I think you could argue that basically all existing religions today are a result of past syncretisms, that that previous religious traditions have in in a way been combined or mixed and matched to form new ones. Yeah, absolutely. And so the argument would be that it appears to also be happening here in a frontier context where German Christianity and uh, Slavic paganism are mixing with one another, not just existing alongside one another, but actually combining into hybrid forms, uh, producing what Cacciola calls, quote, «paganized Christianities and baptized pagan traditions». Uh, quote, they express a pagan logic about life after death, but somewhere along the line of transmission, they were adapted to a Christian semantic field. And I thought this was really interesting in, in the following way. So, I'll read another quote from Cacciola and then uh, say what I was thinking about it. Uh, she says that this is uh, this is common throughout different parts of partially Christianized medieval Europe – The Catholic Church, for all its careful policing of dogma, was unusually tolerant of a wide spectrum of ideas about death and the afterlife. It is striking that stories of ghosts and revenants, for example, while not quite orthodox, were never declared heretical either. They occupied a capacious middle ground of toleration without endorsement, an unusually ambiguous emplacement for such a significant area of thought." Uh, And that really inspired me. I was wondering, like, what is the logic? What is the even maybe the subconscious logic lying behind this distinction of like which types of doctrines are rigorously policed by the church and deviation from them is deemed heretical versus which kinds of doctrines are treated more loosely and with just kind of like a look the other way tolerance? It seems that beliefs in various forms of the undead while they're not within the church's belief structure, they're also not forbidden. They're just sort of, like, allowed to go on, you know, like the, like the clergy would just kind of say, like, oh, okay, and they just look the other way and not bother with it.
1: Yeah, and I guess a lot of that probably gets back into the reality of, of some of these events that we're talking about, you know? Uh, the same sort of paranormal events that happen today, where someone has an experience, they they see something they can't quite explain— and there are these pre-existing ideas about what that might be, and yeah, how far are you going to get, uh, you know, rolling out and um, and maintaining this new religion in this area if you just tell people, oh, well, that, that thing you thought you saw, it's not real. Um, but then, and then you can also imagine the, the inner experience of that. Like you you can't deny the mystery of an experience that you you had. Uh, better to to allow that to exist under the umbrella of the faith than to. Make it be a, a contest between the two, because one of them, uh, the, the the you know the, the ghostly encounter, like it's going to be possible that that is going to be the experience that feels more real and more authentic.
0: Yeah, I think you're you're dead on with that, and this is a, a sort of consideration that Cacciola raises in her paper. I, I, I think this seems highly plausible to me that you could imagine that you know maybe Catholic clergy of this time. Would be seeing a uh, a, a sort of trade off where they'd say, "Okay, well, we could be really strict about making sure people have no pagan beliefs or practices, but if we do that, they're not going to accept the Catholic Church at all. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get them in the door by letting them go halfway. This isn't any any specific case I'm looking at, but you could imagine them saying, "Well, maybe okay. So if they get baptized and they come to church on certain occasions and stuff, you don't you don't have to like fight them tooth and nail on believing in Draugr or something, right? Because if you did, maybe they'd stop coming to church or wouldn't get right. baptized in the first place.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, with with you're going to have to to establish this uh, this new religion on the on the bedrock on the soil of the pre existing culture."
0: Now, I think we're hitting the time limit on part one of this series here, but there, there's so much more interesting stuff to talk about. Tietmar gets into some, uh, some much more grisly stories later on, mm-hmm. and so uh, I, I can't wait to further plumb his digression from the Autonian kings and, and just telling you
1: about every weird ghost story he ever heard. So I'm so excited to come back to that next time. That's right. When there's no more room in hell, the uh, the dead shall go to church. So join us in the next episode when we continue on in this fascinating journey. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have core episodes on Thursdays and Tuesdays. We have uh, an artifact episode on Wednesday, listener mail on Monday. And on Fridays, we do a little weird house cinema. That's our time to set most of the most of the serious consideration aside and just focus in on a weird film. Huge thanks